So Candace Jackson, thank you so much for talking to me today about Title IX. Glad to. Will you start actually with a little bit of your history and bio and how it is you came to be working um, for Betsy DeVos when Title IX changed? Yes, absolutely. So I had gotten involved in the Trump campaign in 2016, and those contacts led to an early interview with Secretary DeVos when she was confirmed. And uh, my background as a, at that point, what, 15, 16 year career lawyer with a lot of discrimination and harassment um, experience, both from uh, both on plaintiff side and defense side. Um, led to it being a good fit for me to step into the education department under Secretary DeVos and lead their Office for Civil Rights. So that's what I did for about 14 months uh, at the beginning of the Trump administration. And then I moved into the education department's uh, general counsel and, uh, office and, and served as their deputy general counsel there uh, for the remainder of the, the term. And so the entire tenure there, uh, about four years, was very focused for me on all aspects of federal civil rights in education. So we've got Title VI of the 1964 um, Civil Rights Act that deals with uh, race and color and national origin discrimination in schools. And then we've got Title IX of the 1972 educational amendments that, that prohibits schools from that any school that takes federal financial assistance from engaging in sex discrimination. So if you're like me, an old fashioned liberal, you assumed that whatever Obama's changes were to Title IX were a good thing. Even though I know that some knowledgeable lefties like Lara Bazelon were sounding the alarm about how this would affect certain populations. So can you explain what Obama's changes were to Title IX and why they were important? Yeah, it was so it was in a couple of different directions that in the 2016, 2017 timeframe were being were being discussed. Uh, under the Obama Biden administration, the changes to Title IX came through informal guidance documents, so not official regulatory changes, but those guidance documents were definitely enforced against schools as though they were binding. And so the two, the two main changes of direction were that one, the education department had, in, had informally through guidance for a good 20 years been, um, been applying Title IX appropriately to the topic of sexual harassment and sexual assault on campuses. Uh, but the Biden uh, Biden led the charge as vice president to under under uh, the Obama administration um, really shift the balance between free speech and due process and having to allow some breathing room for students both at K through 12 and higher ed to express viewpoints and have interactions with each other that touch on topics of sex sexuality. Uh, sex roles, all of that. Um, and when it crosses the line into, into being deemed sexual harassment that can be punished, and then that calls into question, well, if you're accused of crossing that line, what kind of due process, what kind of fair basic procedures are available to you to really air it out neutrally and hopefully get to the bottom of uh, a fair conclusion of whether whether sexual harassment or assault was or was not committed in a particular situation. So that was one area where the Obama-Biden changes uh, shifted Title IX and put a lot more emphasis on schools to stop sexual harassment and assault, but maybe at the expense of clearly spelling out what people accused are, are entitled to in terms of, of fair procedures. And then the other area was separate guidance documents that began including gender identity alongside the concept of sex. And so every time Title IX uh, talks about um, exclusion or denial of benefits or discrimination on the basis of sex, which is the phrase in the statute Title IX, uh, the guidance beca became 
telling schools we're also including gender identity. And if you think about what that means conceptually, there's an inherent conflict because you can't at the, at, at the same time uphold distinctions and categorizations based on an objective concept of sex and also uphold distinctions and categorizations by subjective identity. And was there any way to balance those competing needs? Was there any acknowledgement that they might compete? Any guidance for how to do that when those things conflict? No, the only guidance, there wasn't really any acknowledgement that that created a conflict and both the guidance language and the enforcement procedures um, made it very clear that to the extent there is a conflict, it is always going to be the subjective gender identity that needs to prevail. Uh, meaning if a student does not wish to acknowledge their factual sex, uh, the school has no option but to recognize instead their, their subjective identity. And when it came to the sexual harassment claims, it, it sounds like it was a, an issue of almost institutionalizing believe women, which was an important part of the Me Too movement and, and women feeling able to speak out who never felt they could before. But can you tell me more about what, what gets lost when you switch the, the sort of burden of proof to uh, proving, your, proving someone's guilt versus innocence? Yeah, I think, you know, if you think about the, the, the most common scenarios, uh, whether it's in K through 12 or in a college environment, um, there's one realm that, that, that is, you know, verbal harassment, you know, saying things that are sex-based or sexually charged, sexual in nature that make somebody feel very uncomfortable, that are offensive, um, and so the question in the realm of, of verbal sexual harassment becomes, where is that line between somebody's right to express an opinion or, or say something, even if it's subjectively offensive, versus when you've crossed over into uh, really targeting somebody to the point where their ability and, and their opportunity to access their education is being limited and is being denied to them. So that's always been an issue both in the workplace uh, and in schools to figure out, all right, what situations are, are going to cross over into illegal verbal harassment. Um, and so the, the Obama administration widened the definition of what would count as verbal harassment. And so it, it really only you know, might take one instance of some some offhand comment, maybe joke that uh, that that somebody found offensive, and that would make the school err on the side of of prosecuting or punishing that as as sexual harassment. And then on the physical side, where there's no free speech issues going on, right? Because nobody has the right to violate somebody physically. So when you're talking about sexual assault. Uh, and uh, and rape and and you know things that can easily cross over into crimes like that. You're not trying. You're not talking about balancing anything with with freedom of expression or freedom of speech or freedom of thought. But you are then very much in the realm of um, making sure that both parties involved have the opportunity to present what they say happened in a situation before a neutral, objective fact finder and decision maker. And that kind of fair, predictable, transparent grievance process was just not spelled out at all under the Obama guidelines. And, but what was emphasized was um, it is so important to make sure that sexual assault on campus is stamped out uh, that, that it really left schools in a situation where it seemed like it was uh, more, more advantageous for them to almost equate an accusation of sexual assault with a, a conclusion of responsibility and, and going ahead and punishing. So when we arrived in 2017, we, we right away started working on actual regulations to, to deal with sexual harassment and sexual assault so that we could clearly spell out under legal principles, Supreme Court precedent, and the scope of the statute, Title IX itself, 
what makes sense in terms of uh, respecting free speech, respecting a fair process and, and due process rights for, for everyone involved, uh, and, and yet upholds the, the spirit of uh, non-sex discrimination in schools and making sure that harassment and assault um, can be easily reported, always taken seriously, um, and yet through a predictable process. So can you tell me about the difference between actual regulations and guidance documents? Because this is going to come up again, I think, with Biden. It will. So the uh, Administrative Procedures Act, the APA, has for many decades um, instructed uh, all executive branch agencies, so all federal government agencies are supposed to issue their binding rules and, and directives to their regulated entities by, by following a, a very spelled out process. The keys to that process are, all, are always uh, giving the public uh, notice, advance heads up that the agency intends to issue a new rule or a new, uh, a new policy, and then also allowing public input, public, that the public has a period of time to comment on what the agency is proposing to do. Then the act, the act says that the agency has to actually review those public comments, take them into consideration, and actually they're supposed to write out an explanation of responding to those comments mm -hmm. as part of ish going ahead and issuing its final, its final rule or regulation. And so that kind of uh, notice and comment public involvement, um, it may sound dry and procedural, but in my view, having been part of it for several years, it's extremely meaningful. And in a way, it is even more democratic than even the legislative process where your, law, your elected lawmakers are debating legislation and vote on it because this requires the, the rule makers to literally take into account and, and review and respond to uh, individual and, and organization-based uh, public comments. So do you remember what some of the reactions were and, and did, they, did they break down along party lines or were they varied? What was the public response to the idea of replacing Obama's guidance documents with these regulations that um, place due process above all else and free speech? Yeah, there, there was, you know, so this was in, this was in the 2017 to 2020 range. And so it was definitely against the backdrop of the, the height of the Me Too movement. And so there was a lot of concern about any kind of um, even symbolic or message sending through official regulations, a lot of concern that any kind of tightening up or spelling out of a fair process would somehow return us to the era when women coming forward with um, accusations and reports of, of sexual harassment and assault wouldn't be taken seriously. So there was a lot of genuine and legitimate concern uh, about that. How do you respond to that? How do you make sure those concerns are taken seriously while also protecting people's right to due process, which seems like one of our most important rights in this country to me it, it is well i i, I uh, wrote hundreds and hundreds of pages of uh, explanation when we when we published the final rule to respond to to these objections and um i, I think you know <laughs> was able to quote ruth bader ginsburg saying things like you know this this realm is no different than other realms you both of these things, uh, the right to not be discriminated against and the right to a fair process are, are both fundamental parts of, of our American system and need to be up, upheld in, in this context. Um, and, and so I think when it comes down to it, the, the specific ways that we found um, to, to do this in regulation for schools was to say, here are the ways that you are going to make reporting by anybody a purported victim, their friend, their parent, a teacher who sees something or hears something, anybody can report easily and accessibly that something has gone wrong, that something has happened, that somebody has suffered harassment or, or uh, assault. 
the school is then triggered and must promptly respond by reaching out to the purported victim, regardless of who reported it, and must offer educational supports and engage interactively with the purported victim immediately without any complaint being filed, without any investigation ongoing, to say, what do you need? What can we do to help you? Would it help to separate you from, from the, the alleged perpetrator? Would it, do, do you need, you know, you're in college. Do you need a leave of absence uh, to deal with uh, trauma? Uh, we have a counseling center. Can we set you up with, with counseling sessions? I mean, do anything that the school is capable of doing as an educational support measure immediately and promptly without questioning or prejudging or demanding any kind of evidence or proof. So that is victim support that had never been uh, officially part of uh, legal obligation before. And then we just clearly drew a line and separated and said, if, if the purported victim or the school's Title IX coordinator who's paying attention to this decide that this is a situation that they want to move into formal investigation, then here, here's, here are the procedures that will be followed for that. Both parties have to get notice. Both parties get to be represented by any advisor of their own choice throughout the whole process. Um, we're gonna train the Title IX personnel in that process to be neutral and objective and not prejudge either side. And so we just spelled out a process for uh, if and when the, the purported victim wants an investigation with potential punishment to move forward, then here's the process for following that. So tell me about what Biden is proposing. So now the, the Biden administration is um, in a way a little boxed in. They, they have to go through the regulatory process this time around uh, instead of just issuing more guidance documents because we had put into place the binding regulations in 2020. And so now they have proposed um, to amend those 2020 regulations and address both of those um, categories that we talked about at the beginning. One, to formally now enshrine in legal Title IX regulation, the notion that um, when Title IX says sex, it actually also means uh, gender identity, sexual orientation, pregnancy status, parenting status, um, doesn't provide any definitions of any of those terms. No definition of sex, no definition of sexual orientation, no definition of gender identity, but it, but it says Title IX now includes all of those, all of those things. Uh, it also sets forth a specific uh, rule now that says as to all education programs or activities, the failure to um, allow, allow a student to participate consistent with their gender identity constitutes gender identity discrimination, constitutes infliction of, of the kind of harm that Title IX prohibits. Um, so it's interesting on that front, technically then schools are still allowed to have sex separated spaces and activities that Title IX has always allowed for you know it's all of its 50 years. Things like separate bathrooms for boys and girls, separate locker rooms, separate sports teams, uh, separate human sexuality classes. There have always been a, a you know a pretty pretty long list of of things where the general rule is don't treat students separately based on their sex. Uh, but there are lots of exceptions to that, impliedly in recognition of the basic biological differences between males and females that would make it a concern of uh, either safety, fairness on something like athletics or something like privacy and dignity when it comes to changing your clothes in front of the opposite sex. Um, so technically the proposed Biden regulations still allow that sex separation. It, it, but, but in reality, it collapses it because it now demands that access to those sex separated spaces or activities must be allowed based on every, every individual's gender identity. And so in reality that the, those, all those spaces uh, become mixed sex. And then on the other front, the sexual harassment and assault front, the Biden re regulations would like to um, return to a, a broader definition of what counts as sexual harassment, making it once again, much more subjective if somebody finds something offensive uh, and it is you know, sex related, including now, by the way, if it's related to the topic of gender identity, that can 
now be considered verbal sex-based harassment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the due process side, taking away, you know, some of the uh, procedures that had been spelled out and giving schools um, more options instead of uh, being required to follow certain procedures. So that sounds like if someone misgenders you, if someone uses the wrong name or pronouns or uses your legal name instead of chosen name, they can file a Title IX complaint against you? I, I think that is the only way to read the proposed uh Title IX regulations at this point. Um, that is uh, referring to somebody by uh, a name or a pronoun that they that they say conflicts with their gender identity. Um, yeah, is now going to directly uh, violate uh, Title IX regulation, and you know easily lead to a a Title IX uh, complaint. Which you know, again, this is sexual harassment we're talking about. So that's a that's a pretty big label to slap on somebody that you know because I have expressed unbelief uh, in identity over sex uh, that I could now be labeled a, a sexual harasser. Right, and it's interesting because there has been at least one case where I think it was a a high school teacher refuse to use the adopted pronouns of a student and and he won his case he won his I I think it's a free speech case but it's you know and also not being compelled to honor a belief system that you don't share and that is where this gets very interesting also in um, these conflicting American beliefs right so you have the right to a certain amount of self-determination, but you, that includes free speech and that's in conflict with what they're promoting here. So how have we, how do we grapple with the competing American ideals that these gender issues raise? Well, in my view, you know, stepping back and, and trying to analyze it um, as, as, a, as a lawyer and, and trying to um, rationally look at it uh, my my thought has been now for quite a while that it, it is not as um, it is not as complicated a- as it's being presented as in, in the sense that we have always throughout our American legal history uh, recognized situations that require some balancing uh, it, the the very the very um, tension between freedom of speech and when speech crosses over into presenting a threat of some kind, for example, um, the the free. Generally speaking, I have freedom of movement, but we can also ban stalking because that we have defined a way that a pattern of my movement presents a a legitimate threat to your safety. So we have lots and lots of situations where we have been able to balance and and draw boundaries around um, two sets of rights that seem that seem to collide. I think that the the key problem right now conceptually with gender identity in law is 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 not the it's it's hard enough for law to deal with a very subjective concept like like your gender identity. There there is no non-circular definition that I've ever seen put out by an advocacy group that supports it, a medical group that supports it, a law that tries to enshrine it. There's no non-subjective, non-circular definition. That that's hard enough. But you could just call it X and say X is whatever anybody says it is. We could still deal with that as long as we were willing to maintain our traditional understanding of what it means to discriminate unfairly. We Mm -hmm. prohibit discrimination against an understanding that what that means is don't don't be punitive to somebody because of this characteristic or because of this belief they hold. Don't unfairly penalize them because of their characteristic or because of the belief that that they're espousing. So we do a pretty good job actually of having a framework for for respecting uh, and forbidding negative treatment against people for either something immutable about themselves like, like their sex or their skin color 
uh, or for, for something that they believe, whether about themselves or about the world. Um, we, we know how to do that. The problem right now is that we are calling it illegal discrimination not to validate belief. That to me is mm -hmm. the key legal problem going on right now. Well, that's a really interesting point. I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking, well, look, if we were respecting people's belief systems, then allowing someone to participate on a sports team of their gender identity, I, I can understand how that would feel like discrimination. But if you're, and if you're forcing people, I, I never call them bans on trans kids in sports because they're, I don't think any child's being banned. It's usually saying you need to play on the team in accordance with your biological sex. But this kind of gets back to this facts over feelings recurring issue. But, you know, if you're being forced to play on the team of your biological sex and you don't identify as that sex and you are not, and you are whatever this means, you know, living as a girl, living as a boy, embracing the stereotypes associated with that sex and being looked upon by others as being a member of that sex, even if you're not, how is it not discrimination? If you're, be, if you can't continue, if you can't be in the bathroom or on the sports team of all those other people. Yeah, I, I think there, there's a, there's an important concept in, in uh, law that has um, longstanding roots um, to protect religious liberty and, and religious uh, practice of faith. And that is um, the, the, the idea of um, generally applicable neutral rules. Um, so people in our country, we pride ourselves in uh, tolerating and being pluralistic with respect to a it, just an infinite variety of faith and no faith. Um, and that has um, time and time again, come up against um, civic or, or secular rules of society, laws of society that have general applicability. And the question gets raised, does my religious belief and desire to practice my faith uh, warrant me being exempted from this generally applicable rule? Ah. To me, sex classifications are a generally applicable neutral rule. It's fact-based. There are uh, secular, uh, protective, uh, logical, rational reasons for keeping track of fact factual sex and of um, separating the sexes. In a, in a number of situations. So the question then becomes, what is it that justifies exemption to that generally applicable rule? And it is difficult to justify gaining an exception to a, a, a neutral rule like that when the exception has no criteria attached to it. There is no objective, measurable, uh, check or limiting principle even. Absolutely any of us could claim an, a, an identity um, and seek an exemption. And if there, to me, it's also, it, it's human nature. If there's an advantage or an, uh, an easier road aspect of life to getting an exemption from something, well, yeah, a lot of people are going to do that. Um, but similarly to religious faith, there there's a there's a sincerity aspect to it but even the most sincere belief doesn't always justify exemption uh mm -hmm. from from a general rule it just it it just doesn't it, it makes it difficult for society to function um in a in an objective measurable way that ensures fairness to all different kinds of groups if each individual's subjective belief can plow through uh, and, and kind of decimate society's ability to have to have any any uh, standing rules. It's interesting to hear you talk about it because I am um, an atheist. I was raised to be an atheist, and I would have loved to have not been an atheist, but unfortunately, it didn't work. <laughs> and um, I'm also 
vaguely something called Jewish, which I don't know what it is, but I think I'm it in some, depending on who I'm around. And I think you're, you identify as a Christian, right? You're, you are a faith. Yeah. A personally, faith. Yeah. Okay. So I'm interested in looking through those lenses because in, in some ways to me, I think, well, we, a lot of us have talked about gender identity as a, a kind of religious belief in the gendered soul. And that you can have a this sense of yourself, this soul that is in in conflict with your biological sex. I, I think it's it's a theory that was developed in the 60s. And I think there's been a lot of work that could help us push back against it, but it's taken hold of our society very much like a religious belief. And I did try, when I wrote a book about gender nonconformity, I chose to be agnostic for a variety of reasons, including um, fear of getting attacked and also not understanding then what I know now because I've learned more in the last year than the four years I was studying before then and writing. But for me, and I want, I mean this with all respect, for, for me, it's hard, it's hard to tell the difference between that belief system, which I recognize as a, as a belief system and, and any other kind of faith. And is, is the difference what you were talking about, which is that it's, um, you know, it's, it's not, it has no, it doesn't have much of a history. It's not, it doesn't, yeah. Tell, tell me about what is the difference between having a faith in the concept of gender identity. I know this yeah. is a big question, but, and, and, and other kinds of religious faith, because from over here in atheist land, it's, it, it looks similar in some way. Yeah, I, I have, um, I have a, a, an Orthodox uh, <clears throat> Christian brother, and he is offended to no end that I, I make any kind of comparisons between genderism and a religion. Um, I, I try to tend to say pseudo-religion. I, I think it is difficult to define when a belief system, a community has latched onto a belief system and it becomes a, a religion um, as opposed to kind of a standalone uh, you know, cult or, or just offshoot of something. Uh, longstanding, you know, stand the test of time is certainly part of that. Yeah, that doesn't exist maybe with genderism. I don't think that's the, the fundamental, any kind of fundamental difference. I, I too do not see any difference um, between, um, you know, if I say, I believe uh, in an all-knowing, <clears throat> all, all benevolent God, and, and by the way, it, it's actually three gods in one. What, what the heck does that mean? I don't know but it's three. So just accept it. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I don't see a lot of difference in that, um, <clears throat> in expression of, of that belief, uh, and expression of a belief that something intangible that is unquestionable to anybody, but me. And I recognize it within myself to mean there is some essence, some soul, some, um, some essential part of me, um, that, that neither uh, fact or, or reason can uh, tell me otherwise is what makes me not male or female anymore even, right? But gender identity theory 101 makes me a, a male, female, both or neither. Mm -hmm. um, I don't care what science says. I don't care what evolution says about that. I, I don't, I, I just know it and it's unquestionable. Both of those beliefs, um, I, I believe in a Godhead that is three in one, and I believe in an inner gender uh, soul that determines and tells me and me alone whether I am male, female, both or neither. I see those as very, very, very comparable and similar, and therefore I see them as warranting similar legal treatment and analysis. So no more would I be, I don't know, exempt from criminal conviction for a DUI because I go into court and say, but I'm a Christian. My sins are forgiven. My soul's clean. I have, you know, mm. sorry, you can't punish me. I don't get an exemption from a generally applicable societal rule be just because I genuinely believe that I've paid my price because I've made 
good on this already with my creator. I, fine, I can believe that, right? I can say it, I can believe it very sincerely. It might even help my life. I don't know. But I don't get exempted by the rest of society from following a secular reasoned rule that says, this is the violation, this is the punishment. Uh, and to me, sex classifications are, are even less dramatic in a way than you know criminal punishment and so forth because it is simply acknowledging a factual characteristic that all human beings have. There is nothing offensive um, inherently about being male or female. In fact, I thought we spent the last hundred years or so trying our best to um, get, get a lot more consensus that there is nothing inherently um, demeaning or, or demoralizing or, or even life limiting about happening to have been born male or female. Uh, so I can believe otherwise, but I, I just don't see the, the justification in society for exempting people who, who opt out of the acknowledgement of the fact that humans come in male or female, uh, opt out of that and, and substitute their own belief in what makes somebody boy, girl, both or neither um, as a justification for, for actually exempting them from sex-based classifications and, and rules. And where discrimination then comes back into play is that if I go into court in my prior you know, silly example and talk about believing that I've been forgiven. I shouldn't get an extra punishment for that, right? And the, you know, the, the um, person identifying uh, with a gender identity that is at factual odds with which sex they are, shouldn't then get excluded from an activity or mocked or um, penalized for holding that belief about themselves, but also shouldn't get exempted from fact-based classification at issue um, or gain the legal right to force others to at least pretend uh, to subscribe to, to that faith-based view. So it's, the issue seems to be that the, the Biden administration is treating gender identity as a fact rather than a belief system. And in asserting that we must privilege gender identity over sex, in essence, enshrining the kind of no debate tactic employed by activists, that if we have to flatten those into things of equal value and of equal science, then we don't have a way to discuss the very real implications of dividing sports facilities infrastructure by sex versus gender identity it becomes it becomes impossible to object to i suppose it, it does and i i think that um I, I think that the proponents of of the proposed regulation would say oh come on we're not erasing sex we're not taking sex out of title nine sex is still right there look it, it's in black and white but when you but again when you add gender identity and gender identity is purely individually determined so it's totally subjective to each individual and whatever it is or isn't gender identity is apparently intertwined somehow with sex. So it's not like these are two separate characteristics that we're trying to describe. Um, it, it is inevitable that the subjective concept that, that somehow is allowed to determine the objective category will, will override the objective. There, there's just no, there's no way to keep both in place, even though on paper, they'll say, oh, wait, well, this just both. They're just side by side now. How much does this relate to the Bostock decision in which a trans woman won? I think she'd already passed away, but she, the lawyers proved that she had been discriminated against because she did not look as her employers thought a woman would look. 
And so they, it, was, it was sex discrimination because she identified as a woman and they felt she looked too masculine. I think that was part, I think that was part of, part of what happened with that case. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah, kind of. Amy Stevens was the name of the plaintiff in right. the um, in the um, gender identity case. It was a trio of cases that our yeah. Supreme Court ended up deciding. We know it as the Bostock case. It was actually three cases, two brought by uh, male homosexuals who were fired when they claimed their employer discovered they were homosexual. And then this um, uh, funeral home employee uh, also fired. Um, for um, after coming out as identifying as a woman and therefore wanting to you know present as a woman at work, um, i.e., uh, wear stereotypically feminine clothing and 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 be referred to as as a woman at work. Um, the Bostock decision is playing into all of this right now quite a bit, although. In my view, it is only providing the Biden administration right now with some extra impetus and, and uh, an additional kind of layer of cover. Because again, the Obama administration was the one that started this before we had a Bostock case from our Supreme Court, before our Supreme Court had touched the issue on a national level of uh, sex discrimination law and transgender status. And so ba uh, Bostock, only dealt with the, the the realm of employment sex discrimination and it you know that the supreme court majority did end up saying that uh it was a very interesting logical train of thought they said well statute says sex discrimination you cannot judge somebody's homosexual status without knowing their sex so technically homosexuality is interrelated with sex so it's part of a sex discrimination statute similar reasoning they used for transgender status they said assuming without deciding that sex does mean the biological distinctions between males and females um, when somebody says that they were identified as male at birth and now they identify themselves as female later uh, you cannot judge them or treat them badly, fire them without, for, based on that transgender identity without knowing their sex. Because right. that's the whole point is that they're identifying as a sex that differs from what sex they, they were identified as when they were born. So by that logic, the court said, you know what, if... Uh, it's not legal to hire and fire based on someone's sex. Therefore, not legal to hire and fire based on someone's homosexuality or transgender status. I, I was actually okay with that. And I helped write memos in the education department after Bostock came out that tried to explain uh, why that is um, consistent with sex discrimination law and not problematic uh, because Here's what it comes down to. If sex is not relevant in a situation, then fine. Neither are these somehow sex-related characteristics. The flip side is not true, though, and that's where the Biden administration is misapplying the Bostock case. Bostock only was in a situation where sex wasn't relevant. You don't hire or fire based on being male or female, so you don't hire or fire based on these other things either. But now we're into Title IX, where in education, there are lots and lots of scenarios that we've been talking about where sex is relevant. And you cannot have that both ways. You cannot then say, if sex is a relevant characteristic that is allowed to be taken into account and, and, and distinguish people based on it, you can't then say, oh, and also gender identity is relevant. It doesn't work that way because you either have a space that is separated by sex or you have a space that is separated by a sex related characteristic but that makes no sense for homosexuality let's say nobody's asking to separate spaces like sports or bathrooms based on right. heterosexuality versus homosexuality right but you can't end up with both in the realm of sex and gender identity either you can't say this, this space is sex separated. 
oh, this sex, this space is also gender identity separated. So for the people who see no problem with dividing young people by gender identity versus sex, can you just outline quickly what you object to about it? Yeah, I, I, when you think about the, the school environment, um, it, it, it starts to me with, you know, and this is based on, you know, having been in the education department and seeing the way that uh, data is, is very important. We cannot trace um, sex discrimination longitudinally and we cannot discern patterns and start to talk, have discussions about um, gaps of achievement or uh, inequality of access or, or barriers to educational access that break down along uh, sex lines if we, if we no longer can even collect demographic data from schools based on, based on sex. So that, that's a fundamental problem in the education realm to me. And then you move on to, well, why are any classes, sports, or facilities ever separated based on sex? Um, and those rationales usually break down into very real life situations uh, of either being about privacy and dignity, where whether it is for religious reasons or just a built-in, I think, kind of evolutionary concern, particularly by, by girls, there is something about exposing your body and your bodily functions as a girl to the opposite sex that is an inherent invasion of privacy and, and, and dignity. Um, uh, and, and, you know, until just a few years ago, uh, courts were, were more than ready to recognize that, that kind of um, inherent level of, of dignity. Um, and then, you know, in the realm of athletics, it, it, it's a, a, a special circumstance in the sense that um, there, there is all the evidence in the world that one of the motivators behind Title IX 50 years ago to begin with was the number of uh, girls and women in school sports that could actually uh, qualify to make a team, much less succeed on a team, earn an award, earn a scholarship to go on to college through athletic opportunity was, was very, 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 very small. 50 years later, now that we have um, uh, the Title IX push of saying schools have to pay attention to equality of resources that they're putting into athletic opportunities for girls and boys, um, that, that, that number, you know, thankfully has just skyrocketed for girls. Um, and, you know, plenty of studies back up that uh, sports is not just inherently and along the way positive for girls in, in terms of um, uh, social interaction, in terms of academic uh, engagement, in terms of self-worth, in terms of self-esteem, but later in life, it's very tied to leadership roles and achievements and accomplishments in business and politics and so forth. So, it is astonishing to me that until just these last few hand, handful of years, uh, it was very accepted that uh, it is a worthy goal to, to ensure that uh, girls have equal athletic opportunities starting from very young in school all the way up through uh, college and, and you know maybe even professional leagues and so forth that have started up. So uh, fairness and equal opportunity in the realm of something as as physically driven as sports, you know, almost always is, is going to require um, that we see uh, competition of the best of the best of, of men and competition of the best of the best of women so that women have that equal opportunity. Yeah, it sounds like the difference between a focus on equality, which was very important for girls, um, to a new focus on inclusivity. And there are plenty of times I'm sure where that does matter and there are co-ed sports teams and there are places where that makes sense. But if we were still talking about equality, we might be dividing people in, in different ways. And so you, you've just talked about some of the implications of what, what could happen with these shifts. But I was really struck by something I read, which is that 
schools that don't adopt these guidelines may have to forfeit a certain amount of funding for school lunch. And that really struck me as, um, well, when you look at the research about who is tending to identify as transgender in our society, it's been very located among upper middle class white kids. Not entirely, of course, and, and, and the kind of classic gender dysphoria, early onset childhood dysphoria, that knows no, no demographics. That can happen to, to anyone. But this adolescent cohort that some of us call rapid onset or this new ballooning cohort, whatever, whatever term you want to use, the bulk of kids today identifying tend to be wealthier and whiter. And, and, um, and, and, and the bulk of kids seeking care at gender clinics. So there was a study that showed that actually there were in Pittsburgh that there were lots of kids who had some kind of unusual gender identity, but they weren't at the clinics. And the interesting thing is that the conclusion of the paper is we got to get those kids to the clinics instead of maybe gender diversity is natural and pe some people are actually fine with it. But at any rate, the phenomenon is highly located among the wealthy and when you are tying adoption of these policies to funding for poor children, it strikes me as replicating this larger battle that people have been talking about, about luxury beliefs or about the elites obsessed with social justice in a way that eclipses all concerns about class. And I just, I would like to understand the tying of adoption of the policies to school lunch money. Can you, can you just, it kind of hurts my heart and I, yeah. and it can, and it really confuses me. Yeah. The, the reason that it's working out that way is because title nine, when it was passed by Congress in 1972 was passed under Congress's spending clause authority. So Title IX was not a general mandate where the federal government said, schools, thou shalt not discriminate based on sex. It was a string, strings attached statute. It was saying, if you receive any of our money from the federal level, right. you may not use any of our money to be sex discriminatory. What, ha what that has led to then is that the Department of Education, which is one of, which is the largest and most significant, but not by a long shot, the only federal agency that, that implements Title IX, because lots of federal agencies end up giving money to schools, right? And Department of Agriculture is one of them in the form of uh, <coughs> reduced and free lunch programs. So any source of federal funding that goes to a school, including free and reduced lunch programs, uh, but not limited to that, um, is, is at, in jeopardy if the governing agency decides that that school is violating Title IX. The only remedy under statute for an agency that, that decides a school under its uh, purview isn't following Title IX, I, I mean, they, the process in reality is that the agency works very hard with the school to get them to voluntarily agree to come into compliance, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, the only punch, the only hammer that the federal agency has is to remove federal funding. Now, theoretically, that's not actually limited to only one source of funding. And so the news coverage of uh, taking away free and reduced lunch program money, that that is, that is true and that is possible, but it also depends on how active the Department of Agriculture is in, in Title IX. And to be honest with you, they're, they're not terribly. Um, it is usually the, the Department of Education and then probably second, the Department of Justice that gets involved in, in schools compliance with Title IX. Now, that is no better because the Department of, of Education, while the total amount of federal money through the education department to say K through 12 school districts is a small part of the district's budget, usually six, 8% maybe, 
Um, it's significant money. It really is. And it's things like uh, monies under Title I, which go specifically are supposed to be dedicated to disadvantaged populations. So yeah. it's none of it is a good result or a pleasant result to say you have, we are saying you are violating a federal civil rights mandate. And the only penalty for that that we have at our disposal is not to make you pay money, it's to take your money away. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why we're in that posture of, at the end of the day, that is the only legal result for a school being found in violation of Title IX by one of these federal agencies. Um, the only upside, the only good news is that in practicality, that never happens. In the history of the education department, I, I don't believe that even one single school district has had it, all of its financial federal financial aid just just yanked and cut away there, there's just it's only even gotten to the final final level where it's about to happen a handful of times yeah. you know and, and so it is unlikely and i i think on the gender issue more than any other topic we've seen there are going to be some school districts out there that are are going to push back on the education department which usually doesn't even have to take a, a school district to that final, you know, court or administrative um, hearing level of saying we're ready to cut off all your funding because you just won't play ball with us. They rarely have to do that. I think we're going to see that a little bit more, though, with this issue, because there are going to be some schools that, for example, are now in states where the state law requires the school to separate sports by by sex right. or the school district just is run, you know, by a, a school board that you know, looks at this and says, well, wait a minute. I know we, we, we're not okay. We feel like you are requiring us to harm girls at our school and we're, we're not going to do it. So I, I think we may see some pushback like we never have before. So it sounds like um, that talking point was extracted for maximum impact. It's real, but it's also unlikely so that parents who were concerned about doing something that would endanger the neediest kids at their school probably are okay to speak out if they want to. Yeah, okay. Yes, it, it takes a lot of red tape and legal hurdles to actually get to the point of, of depriving and cutting off and terminating your school district's uh, access to those funds. So we're gonna wrap it up, but I wanted to just hear about what you're up to, because I believe you're, I believe there's so much work in this field that you are going off on a new adventure, law, gender adventure. So will you tell us about what that is? Yes. So I, I have, um, I, I've worked a lot over the last year and a half since leaving the education department, a lot of involvement with uh, parent groups like GenSpect and Partners for Ethical Care and, um, you know, trying hard to match up um, parents and detransitioners with uh, lawyers to take legal action against schools or therapists or whatever the need may be in this in this realm right now. And so now I'm, I am deciding to uh, begin a, a law practice of my own and um, launch that in the next few weeks here to focus in particular on uh, advising and representing uh, parents and individuals, uh, whether it's a, a, in school situations or employment situations, um, per, uh, mental health or healthcare professionals that are accused of conversion therapy, uh, all that realm where, where we're seeing uh, the replacement of, of sex with gender identity in law cause very real uh, problems and, and violations of other rights. So I'm excited about that. Thank you for asking about it. Um, yeah. So yeah, look for a formal announcement in the few, in a, you know, over the next few weeks. Um, if you don't follow me on Twitter, please do. And what's your, what's your Twitter, Twitter handle? It is at C.E. Jackson Law. Great. Is there any, to be a resource. Is there any final advice you have for parents concerned about what's going on with Title IX? Um, what should they do? Yeah, I, I think um, 
pushing back uh, in in groups, if possible, is is always the safest and most effective way. If you can huddle up with, uh, you know, maybe virtually these days, right, with other parents in in your school, share receipts with each other. First of all, receipts as in, hey, I actually got a video recording of, you know, the um, you know, lecture or the, the training that was handed down in my kid's class. And this is exactly what's going on in our school. Um, don't assume that because you've seen something happening in a school floating around on TikTok, that that is what's happening in your school. You know, take the time to request, you know, through public records laws or, you know, through your kid, you know, asking your child when they come home, you know, with homework or with uh, handouts, right, to actually get a feel for what is going on in your in your school, then you then you are informed and you can uh, request you can show up at at regularly scheduled board meetings, but you can also request meetings with school officials and just keep asking questions at this point that is one of the most effective things that parents can do. Uh, I think is just ask the the logical questions so wait a minute so you're saying if my child wants to be in the boys cabin on the overnight trip you're going to let her do that even if I don't want her to is that how the policy you know just ask the questions um and and uh try to at least um opt out where you can but make but but make school officials understand that parents are paying attention that's great. Well, Candace, thank you so much for doing this interview with me. I learned a lot. Thank you, Lisa. So great to talk to you.